Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za morning church. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 10. That is where we find ourselves this morning as we are uh, tracking through the book of Acts. We will consider this morning just the first eight verses as we begin our time in this chapter. Now, I'm just going to tell you now for the For the rest of the year, we're going to spend most of our time in this chapter and the chapter following it, because these chapters, this section here, this pericope, is an important section, a pivotal um, uh, 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 section in the narrative of the book of Acts. So we will spend some time in these next two chapters, so feel free to get acquainted with them over the next couple of weeks. Let me read for you chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, throughout history, there have been moments that mark the change of a particular order. Uh, when things have been going in a particular direction, there, there, there happens to be a moment that lodges, lodges itself in our minds as this is the moment, this is the picture where everything changed and we knew that things are no longer going to be the same. A classic example of this is the famous story of World War II when the Allied troops landed on the French beach of Normandy. At that moment, called D-Day, as you know, it was obvious that the the war was over. While there was a lot more to be done in the war in dealing with uh, the Nazi regime, uh, the image of those soldiers landing on that coast lodges itself as a moment when everything turned. 
for us in South Africa, as an example, the image of Nelson Mandela being released, that moment where he is being released in, from prison in 1990 and waving to crowds, is a similar moment. Those who were alive at that time knew that of all the, the way that the things have been, there's going to be some change. Don't know what the change is going to be like, but there's certainly going to be change. It is a moment that lodges itself in the brain as a time when everything changed. Things were no longer going to be the same. Well, in the text in front of us today, we have a very similar situation. The multiple events of chapter 10 begin a new era in the life of the holy people of God. And not just a new era in their life, but also in redemptive history. After chapter 10, nothing will be the same in the life of the, in the, life of the church that we have been following for nine chapters. So far we have seen, you and I, a growth of the church from 120 in the upper room there in Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit fall, fell on them, to thousands and thousands of people all around Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. But what we have seen so far in, is that in these thousands and thousands of people, that growth of these people has grown monolithically within the Jewish system. Meaning that whatever ways of worship that was in force in the, in the old covenant temple system was still the main way of worship for these people. This holy group of people, these thousands of thousands that are now found all over the place, these holy, this holy group of people prayed at the Jewish hour of prayer, cleansed themselves in the Jewish system of cleansing, kept the Jewish calendar, and chiefly, more important for our text, they treated Gentiles, the uncircumcised, in the manner in which the Jewish system of worship required. At this point, those who have been called with the wonderful terms that we looked at last week a little bit, they've been called disciples, they've been called followers of the way, they've been called saints, as we saw last week, all of them operated within the Jewish worship system. Which means those excluded from full membership in the Jewish system have also not yet been considered for full membership in this community. You following me? The unspoken message so far is that if you are not a Jew, you cannot be a Christian. Even the Gentile that you and I met in chapter 8 that received baptism at Philip's preaching had become a Jewish proselyte, meaning that he had converted fully into Judaism. And while he was an Ethiopian living in Ethiopia, he lived like a Jew from Palestine. One commentator explains that the Jewish worship system was like a fence, a border, separating countries. And if you wanted to come over to this side of the fence, you needed some sort of a visa. And that visa included being, if you're a male, being circumcised. And then, of course, for everybody else, you had to give alms, you had to fast at the certain times, you had to participate in temple worship in the manner that is dictated, you had to keep the calendar of the Jews, and you had to follow the cleansing laws. And here's the 
Here's the thing with this reality, this, this reality that the worship was a fence in that way. If you were a Gentile, someone outside, and you saw something attractive and irresistible about Israel's God, you needed to become effectively an Israelite externally in order for God's community to accept you fully into worship. So if you saw something powerful, you looked at Israel's God, you heard some of his words, and you were attracted to it, for you to be fully recognized as a worshiper, and for the others to think, yes, your worship is acceptable to God, you had to change your whole life, not just in your heart, but you had to now act and live as a Jew. And some Gentiles did this because they saw what was so attractive in Israel's God. They found something powerfully attractive in him, and they, they changed their allegiance entirely and became Jewish in every way. And those Gentiles were called proselytes. So they became circumcised, and then they followed the cleansing laws, etc. and so forth. And you remember some of these Gentiles even in the Old Testament. Remember uh, someone like Rahab, the prostitute, who, who says, we have heard of your God, now remember me, because I want to be a part of you. Or what about Ruth, the Moabites, who said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, your God is going to be my God. They found something attractive in this God, and so they entirely changed and became Jewish, and their history, they are even a part of the history of the Jewish people, even though they were not Jews. But then there was another group of Gentiles. These Gentiles also equally found something powerfully attractive about Israel's God and worshipped and honored Israel's God, but they could not go in, go in all the way in becoming Jewish for many different reasons. An example of this in the Old Testament, if you remember, is Naaman the Syrian. Do you remember him? Naaman the Syrian was a Syrian leader of the army of the king of Syria, and he became a leper, and then the king of Syria sent, and then the, Naaman essentially, after a whole conversation, the, the, Naaman comes and Elisha essentially heals him uh, in the river Jordan by dunking him, telling him to go into the water seven times. And after that, he is cleansed, and he realizes that the true God is the God of the Israelites. And I want you to listen to the statement that he makes. This is the statement that he makes. He says, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now I know there is no God except the God who is in Israel. A powerful confession from a man who had his own gods. His god, Rimmon. He, He's saying this even though he, he has his own gods, a litany of them. But then he later explains why he cannot entirely be a part of the Jewish system. This is what he says. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, 
When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So Naaman is saying there's no other God in the world except the God of the Israelites. However, I have a job and I'm going I'm to worship him. I'm gonna, my heart is going to be entirely towards him now. But I have a job as the leader of the army. My, my, my master leans on me when he goes into the house of Rimmon. So I'm going to ask, please, you, ask God to forgive me in this matter because I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to still be a part of that because I have, I have a job in my country. And because he was, also not a, he was also a Syrian warrior, he obviously could not keep all the Jewish ceremonies because of his life as a Syrian warrior. And this was the plight of many men and women who saw and recognized that God in Israel is the only God, but for many reasons could not go fully into becoming Jewish externally. And here in Peter's day, there were many such Gentiles. And the, there is a category, there's a name for them. They are called the devout or God-fearers. Um, while we will meet many of them from now on, uh, from in, this, in the narrative of Acts, I will meet many of them, especially when pre Peter preaches in the synagogues in the dispersion. When Peter, well, no, sorry, not Peter, when Paul starts going around preaching in the synagogues all over uh, Europe there, that's when we'll meet a lot of these God-fearers. These God-fearers, these, these Gentiles who were, who, did not, who were not circumcised and become fully Jewish externally, were allowed in some synagogues, but they were not allowed completely in all the, in all the aspects of the worship of God. They prayed, they loved the God of Israel, but they were not circumcised, and so they were considered unclean to interact with. And Cornelius in our text is one such a man. We're not told when Cornelius found Israel's God. We're not told the details of how he stopped following the gods of his own people um, and, and, and turned to Israel's God. We're not told exactly what it is that attracted him. All we know is that here we have a testimony of a man who was devoted to the God of Israel. We're introduced here to Cornelius, you see there, in verse 1, as a centurion. And a centurion, of course, is a commander of 100 soldiers in the Roman system. So, like Naaman, Cornelius is a leading soldier, and one could even argue that he is more important because his troops were based at Caesar Maria Maritama, which functioned as, as the provincial capital under the Roman governor of Judea. That's where he is, the Caesarea. That area is an area that is, uh, that is the provincial capital of the Roman governor of Judea. So it's basically their Pretoria in, this, in that sense. Like the centurion you remember described in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7, Cornelius was noteworthy for his kindness to the Jewish people. Not only is he kind to the Jewish people, but he is noteworthy particularly for leading his whole family to the worship of, the, of Israel's God and in constant, being in constant prayer. In short, as verse 2 says, he was devout and God-fearing. 
This is Cornelius of what was known of the, as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. That's really who he is. Devout here alludes to the clarity of his works. No one looking at Cornelius could deny that he is committed to Yahweh. No one looking at him could deny that this man is not just committed to a God, but he is committed to the God of Israel. And also, it distinguished this word devout, clearly distinguishes him from those who were interested in Yahweh, but never fully gave themselves or wholly gave themselves to him. You can imagine that there are a number of people who are interested, who maybe are seeing some of the same things in Yahweh that, that, that Cornelius is seeing, but they are not devoted to him. They are there and thereabouts. They're on the side. Well, this term is saying there's no, this is very clear. This man, he's just like the, you remember the, the parable of the man who found a, a treasure in a field and then went and sold everything that he had to come and buy that, that field. You remember that parable? Well, that's what has happened here with Cornelius. Cornelius has everything for him now is about this God of Israel that he has found. The term God-fearing here, when it says he, he was devout and feared God with all his household, this term God-fearer, that is really, they've tried to translate it here, but it really, the, the, the word here is God, the, the phrase here is God-fearer with his household. This term is, is basically explaining to the people, it, it would be known to the people that uh, Luke is writing to, that this is a term, a phrase, for those Gentiles who love God, the, Israel's God, but have not become circumcised. That's what the, 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 the phrase is fearing God there alludes to. And I want you to notice something here. Do you notice that it says, so he, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, and look at what he did. He gave alms generously to who? Who did he give alms generously to? To the people. Well, who are the people? Who are the people that he's talking about? Well, in the same way as Tabitha that we saw last week, in the same way that Tabitha cared for other people in the covenant community, Cornelius cares for the covenant people that he is not a legal part of. Are you seeing this? He is not considered one of us, but he cares for us. See, he is not considered a, a part, a full part of the community of Israel, of, of the people who worship God. But here he is caring for them. Here he is giving to them, giving to them what he has, sharing with them what he has. He gave alms, and he didn't just give alms just to tick a box. It says here, he gave alms generously. He was very generous to the people of Israel. Now imagine being Cornelius' child, just for two moments. Imagine being Cornelius' child. Father, why do we give money and provide clothes and give food to a group of people who consider us dirty and would not even eat the food we provide for them with us at our table? 
Why would we do that? We're giving food to these people, but they would never even sit down and eat it with us because they consider us unclean. Why would you do that, Father? And then here's Cornelius' answer. Because there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Because there is no God in all the earth except the God of these people. Just like Tabitha, Cornelius' passion for Yahweh is seen in how he treats his people. So we made some practical application last week regarding taking care of those in the covenant community. So I'll not repeat that here. But rather I want to turn your attention to the last piece of biographical information we are given about Cornelius. We've heard that he is devout, that he fears God with his whole family, and that he provides for the needs of the covenant people of God. And now finally we're told this last piece of information. He prayed continually to God. He was devout, he feared God, he gave alms, and he prayed continually to God. What does continual prayer to God suggest about Cornelius? If you were to hear that this person always, consistently, continually devotes himself to pray to God, well, what does that tell you about that person? What is Luke trying to communicate to us here. Well, you have to think about what the, what the function of prayer is in the ancient world. And for that, I want to take you, I want to take you just a little bit on a little bit. Come with me for a moment to Psalm 50. I want to show you something in Psalm 50. This is what, and this really encapsulates this entire what we're, what we're being told about Cornelius. If you look at Psalm 50, and, and, and I'll start reading for you for, from verse 12. The, 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 the key that I want you to, to focus on is there from verse 14. But let's start in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. This is God speaking to the Israelites. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What is God saying here? Well, God is saying, you guys are not thinking accurately about the sacrifices that you give to me. The sacrifices that you're giving to me when you kill bulls and goats are not because I need them. This is not what I'm after from you. The kind of work, this is, this is what you're doing is it's not, it's not adding anything from me. I, I have everything I need. If I was in need, I would not come to you. Let's, I don't get hungry, but if I did get hungry, I wouldn't tell you because I own everything. So then the question then that you can imagine from an Israelite at that point is, okay, then God, if, if you're not so pleased about just about sacrifices, which also even in Psalm 51, David talks about bulls and goats don't really satisfy you. It's not what you're after. If that's not exactly what it is that you're after, then what are you after? What is the sacrifice? What is it, the worship that you are after from me? Look at what he says. There's an answer in verse 14. Here's what you're to do. Don't think about it this way. Think this way. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Now look at this. And call upon me in the day of trouble, 
I will deliver you and you will glorify me. What is it that God actually is looking for? Well, God is after a sacrifice of thanksgiving. People who love him and are thankful and can see his myriad and and varied grace around them. And they're always abounding in thanksgiving. Not people who look around and can only see things to complain about. But people who look around and see the grace and power of God. And they they can't just say, wow, look at how kind the Lord is. It spills over from in their hearts to give him thanks. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. And then the second thing he says is, perform your vows to the Most High. And this is, if you've given me a word, if you've said you're going to do something, do it. Performing your vows to the Most High means that you need to keep the covenant. Walk in my ways. You have come, I have brought you here by my own power. Now walk in in earnestness and truth in front of me. That's what this phrase is is alluding to but here's one verse 15 that you and I probably you might maybe have not thought about as a matter of true allegiance and worship to God call upon me in the day of trouble I will deliver you and you will do what you glorify me now let me ask you this why do people have gods why do people have gods what functions do the different gods of the different people, both in the ancient world and even today, why do people have principalities and things and, and, uh, and, and religions that they go after? What is, what is the point of gods? The point of gods is that gods are more powerful than you. Gods can do stuff for you. God here is saying, I am your God. When you are in trouble, you don't call out to anybody else. You call out to me. Have you thought about this, that it is a sin for you to not cry out to God when you are hard-pressed? Have you ever thought about that? It is not a matter of, of option. Well, I can choose to go to God, and then I'm, I can choose to go to these things. Or I can choo- it's a matter of worship. When, when you are hard-pressed by life, when things are hard and you don't know where, how you're going to get a solution, to not cry out to God is an affront to Him. To not cry out to God is offensive to Him because He has drawn you in so that He can be your God. He's the one, he's the one that you cry out to. He's the one, you see, and even we, we read last week in First Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxieties on who? On Him. What's the reason? For He cares for you. To trust other places, to run first to other things in hard times and hardship reveals your true God. At least the felt operational God of your heart. The operational God that's really there. The, in, in, in particular moments when, 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 when life is hard, where? Where does my cry cry to? I'm, a, I'm designed as a being that is always to have his hands open. Now when I can't help myself, where do I go for help? This praying continually to God, done here 
by Cornelius is rich. It is saying, here's a Gentile who comes from the world, probably has 300 gods or however many gods the people, his own people have. He has so many gods, but now he has come to Israel's God and his continual prayer, his continual trust, his continual cry is to the God of Israel. This is what this is describing for us. It's describing to us a man who is wholehearted, devoted, wholeheartedly devoted to the God of the Israelites. And so now the question then becomes, okay, so then what does God think of this man? This man is devout. He is devout. He is leading his entire family to God. This man is giving arms to the people of God. This man prays continually, asks, and, and, and lays himself out in front of this God. How is God going to respond to him? And you have to, and you have to feel the suspense here. He is uncircumcised. You follow? Because he is uncircumcised, as a Jew, you're not expecting that God is going to come to him and offer him anything. Because he's uncircumcised, if anything, if God comes to him, you'd expect God to come to him and say, be circumcised and then we'll talk. But what, how, does God, how does God respond to Cornelius? Verse 3. At about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Your prayers and your arms, essentially your life as you've lived it since you've come into contact with the God of Israel, has risen up as a memorial before God. See, this angel comes, and of course he responds like everybody else responds when a glorious being shows up in front of you. He is terrified. But his, but his terror was unnecessary because this angel comes with good news. In fact, this angel comes with great news. And that news is this. While the covenant community does not consider him a part of the congregation, God has received his prayers. While the covenant community considers him unclean, God has looked upon him and remembered him. His arms, his devotion to God, his prayers to God have risen up like a sweet aroma in front of of the Lord. They are a memorial. They have caused God to remember you. This phrase, ascended up as a memorial, is sacrificial language. Whenever you hear this phrase, it is referring to something that moves God. For example, you remember when the Israelites were oppressed in Egypt and they were, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And then there's this very same phrase is used when they were crying, their cries and their groans ascended before God and God determined at that point to move and do something about their cries. In the sacrificial law in Leviticus chapter 2, 
a tenth of the grain offering would be, would be burnt and would rise up as a sweet aroma before the Lord. And this is the, 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 the memorial thanksgiving. And in Revelation, when the Lord Jesus is sitting on his throne in, Ro- in Revelation 14, judging men, and then after he's judged them, then he's punishing them in eternity, the scripture says, the smoke of their torment rose up in the presence of Jesus. Meaning that as Jesus Christ is crushing his enemies, the smoke of their torment rises up before him and pleases him. Whenever you hear this phrase, you must think of something that goes up to God and moves him and pleases him. It's a very strong phrase to say that something has risen from earth and gone up before God and moved him. The idea here is that Cornelius' prayers and his kindness to poor strangers has caused God in heaven to remember him. I want you to think about that for a moment with me. What kind of life is so powerful, so forceful, that it moves God in heaven? If you were to take a survey in Johannesburg and ask people around the streets, What do you think is the kind of life that is so powerful and so forceful that it it moves God in heaven? It comes up before God in heaven as a pleasing thing. I'm sure you'll get all kinds of different answers. What kind of answers do you think you'll get? Well, it must be a a demon-casting life. Perhaps... It must be, uh, you know, a world-shaking life. Somebody who's, who's done missionary work across the place. Oh, it, it, it must be uh, someone who is so eloquent that thousands of people come to hear him and hear the word of God from him. You, I'm sure you hear all kinds of different things that people would say, this is a life that is so powerful that it moves God in heaven. But what is the thing that has been said here? A life, a praying and generous life. That's it. Those are the two things that, are, that have been pointed out by the angel here. Your arms, your generosity to poor strangers in the covenant community, and your consistent, constant, persistent prayers before the God of heaven, those have risen up as a memorial before God. A praying and generous life. I want you to think with me for a moment. By the world's standards, Cornelius was successful. He was a warrior. He was a leader of over a hundred. And he was a rich man living in the, in the, in the powerful province um, of, of the, uh, in the Roman Empire of Judea. Sorry, living in the, in a, in a, in the capital of the... Of the, pro, of the yo. Living in the capital of the province of the Roman Empire. Let's, let's leave that. He's living, in a, he's living in, a good, in a great city. Let's just say that. Okay? He's living in, a, in, a, in an important city. How's that? He's living in a massive important city. He's living in Cape Town. Okay? Okay? Cape Townian. They're so special they want to leave South Africa. Right? Like, he's, he's, he lives in Cape Town. Okay? 
He's, he's successful by all the world's standards, but, that, but those things that we've just listed are not the things that move God in heaven. His success, the fact that he's a leader, the fact that he's a warrior, the fact that he lives in this wonderful city is not the thing that is being pointed out here. It's the fact that he was a praying and generous man. He was praying and generous. And I hope that encourages you. An impactful, God-moving life is a simple one. Pray and be generous, at least in this text. If we did a biblical or systematic theology of this, we might get a bit more complicated. But at least just in the text in front of us, a, a, a life that, that rises up before God as a memorial is a life that is generous and praying. A life that is consistently looking to God, crying out to Him, bringing our concerns to Him, bringing thanksgiving to Him, praying for others, praying for ourselves, praying for the world and the church, and then being generous. And what does generosity mean? Generosity simply means that when money comes into your hands, it does not stay there for long. Generous, where are the needs? Let me help. Of course, I'll take care of me and mine and my responsibilities, but I'm also going to look around and see where are the needs? Generous, helping, especially in, in the covenant community. You must be encouraged by this, saints, if you are wondering if your life, perhaps, if, if, if you're, you're looking for significance, and the world will tell you, look for significance in that, and look for significance in this. But I'll say to you that you can just pray to the Lord, trust in the Lord, be devoted to the Lord, and that is what rises up before Him. Just being devoted to the Lord. Constantly thinking about the Lord and praying to Him and helping, being kind and generous to those in need. It's very simple. While the world might say, here's the thing that we in the world take as a memorial, success, beauty, everlasting youth, Making yourself look young or smelling nice. Well, that's, what, that's the memorial that moves the world. The memorial, the thing that goes up, that makes, that thing that goes up to God is a simple prayer life and a generous heart. Hebrews 13, the writer of the Hebrews uses remarkably similar language regarding what sacrifices the Hebrews are to perform. Turn with me there. I want you to see this in your, script, in your own copy of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 13. He uses almost verbatim language explaining the kinds of sacrifices that now we are to give to God. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 15. Through Him, that is through Christ, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And what is that, writer of Hebrews? That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Constantly acknowledging the Lord. In prayer, in thanksgiving, constantly knowing that He is the one. He is the most powerfully attractive one. He's the one we're always going to go to. We're going to praise Him and acknowledge 
his name. That's the first thing. And that here correlates to the prayer that he was doing. And verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you see this language? It's very Levitical language, very sacrificial temple language. You, Cornelius, have not been allowed into the temple because you're not circumcised. You're not allowed to do all those things. But your sacrifice of coming to, the, to Israel's God, beseeching Him for your life, asking Him, pleading with Him, and, and being generous to His people has risen up and has pleased God. Acknowledging Him in prayer, in praise, and sharing with others what we have. That is the life. And since I must say this perhaps a bit strongly here. There must come a point in our lives where we must stop it with the excuses and live lives that please God. There must come a point, dear saints, in our lives where we must, just, we must stop it with the excuses. There's no excuse for being stingy. There's no excuse for being stingy. There's no excuse as a Christian who has been called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Bountifully so. The Lord Jesus left the riches of heaven to come and call you. And when are you going to be stingy with a fat cook? You're going to be stingy and not consider the needs of others. You're going to consider and just think about your own stomach all the time. It's all about you. It's all about you and how you think and what you want, when you want it, how you want it. James says we stumble in many ways, and that's true. And at the same time, we must agree together that stinginess must not be tolerated among us. Now, don't use that to try and get someone to give you something. Okay? You need to stop being stingy. Give me the... That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? But we must hold out each other to that standard. What is it that's pleasing to God? The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ came and died and drew us in. And now we are given lives and we can return to Him. We can return things to Him. Do things that please Him in thankfulness. Are you not thankful that He died for you? Are, are you not, does your heart, when you consider your sin, just think about how you sinned this past week. And you consider how much the sins that you committed this past week are worth the entire world going for an eternity to hell for. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I've paid for it. And here I am, and I'm going to be stingy and not consider others. I'm going to come in, walk into church, and walk out, and not even think to, to interact and get to know people so I can know how to help. Saints, there must come a time when we must stop it with the excuses. It's the same with prayerlessness. If you are living a prayerless life, you need to repent. God has called us towards Himself. And He says, come to Me, trust Me, seek My face, wait upon Me. Let Me be the one who's, who in your eyes is the apple of your eye. Seek My face. Don't be so distracted by this and that and that. Seek My face. Live a life of seeking Me. Come to the prayer meeting when we pray. 
together. Seek me. We must not live prayerless lives because this is a sacrifice that pleases God. One question now back in our text that you might have is whether or not Cornelius, and I'm sure as we're speaking this way, you might have a question in your mind. Wait a second. Has Cornelius bought his salvation through prayer and sharing what he has? I'm sure many maybe of you are thinking, well, is that what he's done here? He's, he's bought his salvation this way. And the answer is no, he hasn't. Just like the scribe in Mark chapter 7, to whom the Lord Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. You are close to the kingdom. Cornelius is the same. He was close to the kingdom, but he was not in the kingdom. Peter tells us in, cha in, in chapter 11 that the reason that Cornelius was told to send for him was so that he can tell him the name by which he may be saved. So he was not saved yet, but being at the periphery of the covenant community of God, the Lord saw him and said, I'm going to bring the gospel to this guy to bring him entirely in to the covenant community. And so the angel now tells him what to do here. And the angel says to him, uh, well, verse 4, after he's staring in terror, he says, what is it, Lord? And the angel says, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him and had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. He is told to send uh, for Peter. And of course, Peter is going to come, and we're going to see what, when Peter comes, what does he say. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into that. So, but let me leave you with this as we close here. Cornelius, his response to this angel is a very good one. At first, he is terrified at the appearance of this angelic messenger. And then when he is told what to do with just these specific details, he does it post haste. He sends for Peter. And in fact, look at how seriously he took it. He took two of his servants and what? There in verse 7. Two of his servants to go and call for Peter and a devout soldier. So he said, I'm going to send two of my servants, but I'm also going to send another Gentile who loves the God of Israel, who's also a soldier, who's going to protect them and be with them when they go and call Peter. He is taking what he's being told to do very seriously. And we will see now late, later in a few weeks' time when we come back to this text what happens when Peter arrives. But let me leave you with this. When the word of the Lord comes to you, and perhaps there are some of you here who are around the kingdom. You are around, but you're not in. And you're hearing the word of the word. It's coming to you. This is the way to go. And you're not listening. You need to obey. You need to listen to the word of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord to you? Well, the, Lord of the, Lord, the word of the Lord to you is not go somewhere and call someone. That was for Cornelius at Cornelius' time. 
the word of the Lord to you is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent. Turn away from your sins and believe. But there's even also here a lesson for us, dear saints, those of us who have believed in the Lord. That may the Lord give us again that, that softness, that when the Lord speaks, we instantly and immediately jump to do what we say, what He says, and take it seriously. You know, it's one thing to hear sermons over and over again and hear all these sermons. But it's another thing to hear sermons and seek with all earnestness and energy to apply them. And seek with diligence to take what I've heard, discuss it perhaps with others, but make sure that the word of the Lord, did, I did not just hear the word, even when you were discussing the word of the Lord amongst each other. Here you are, you're having a Bible study amongst each other, or you, 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 you're together with the brothers and sisters, and, and someone brings out the word, and it just, it, it just lodges in your heart. You're like, this is, I'd never seen this, or I'd never thought about it this way. Thank you for telling this to me. Leave and apply. Do it. Pray, and let's pray that the Lord would return to us that softness, especially that softness that we had, that we had when we were new believers, to, when we were jumping and doing things, sometimes even in an extreme way. May God help us to be soft again, just like Cornelius is here, to do the word and to do it with diligence and seriousness. Amen. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we do trust you and thank you for all that you have done for us. We praise your name. You are indeed a good God. And we ask that you would help us to be generous and a praying people. That our lives might be marked by generosity and prayer. That it might be said for all of us here that these were people who sought your face and sought to alleviate the suffering of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.